Good morning. In today's headlines, key decisions could be made today in a pair of cases involving former President Trump. Georgia's district attorney could reveal her cards against Trump, while a D.C. judge may signal when a trial in that case could start. Who won the first GOP debate? Polls show different candidates as the top performer. This while Robert F. Kennedy Jr. weighs in. Find out his critique. Could a hurricane hit Florida this week? Tropical Storm Idalia is gathering strength and forecast to make landfall on Wednesday, possibly as a Category 2 storm. 3M agrees to a $6.5 million settlement. The SEC alleges it provided Chinese regime officials with overseas travel and shopping sprees to boost sales. Ceiling fans come under scrutiny as the Biden administration eyes greater efficiency. Critics say the new proposals put small businesses in the line of fire. And there are still over 300 people unaccounted for following the deadly wildfires on Maui earlier this month. At the same time, an organization is helping to rescue orphaned pets to San Diego. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Today is Monday, August 28th, and we're kicking things off with an update on former President Donald Trump. Charges against Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, face a major test today, while a hearing in D.C. could play a key role in setting the date for one of the former president's trials. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the legal proceedings. Through participation. In Georgia, District Attorney Fonnie Willis will lay out the details of her anti-racketeering case against Trump, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and 17 other co-defendants at a federal hearing Monday morning. It's the first time substantive arguments will be made in court about the four criminal cases brought against Trump this year. The hearing will center on Meadows' motion to move his case to federal court, but it could end up acting as a mini-trial that determines the future of Fulton County's case against the former president. Meadows is one of several defendants who have filed to move their cases from Georgia state court, and Trump is expected to file a similar motion. Meadows is arguing that the charges against him in Georgia should be dismissed under a federal immunity claim. That is sometimes granted to those prosecuted or sued for alleged conduct done on behalf of the U.S. government or tied to their federal position. Over in Washington, Judge Tanya Chutkin will be holding a status hearing on Monday. Chutkin will consider dueling arguments by special counsel Jack Smith and Trump's defense team. The issue is the trial date over Trump's attempt to challenge the 2020 election results. Smith wants the trial to begin January 2nd. That's just two weeks before Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses, a contest that will serve as Trump's first big test in the 2024 primary race. The ex-president's team has asked for much more time and is proposing a date of April 2026. Trump is not expected to be at the hearing. His attorney, Alina Haba, told Fox News she's confident the proposed trial dates will be moved. It's unrealistic, it's theatrics, and no judge is going to say that you can be on two trials at once in two different states. Noting that there would likely be overlap with his other trials. If special counsel Smith gets his preferred trial date of January 2nd, the proceedings would begin just days before the third anniversary of the breach of the U.S. Capitol. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Trump has managed to turn his surrender and mugshot into a major campaign hall. 
The former president has raked in over $7 million since his booking on Thursday, and his campaign set its highest single-day haul to date on Friday with over $4 million released. And now from politics to the forces of nature, Tropical Storm Idalia could strengthen into a hurricane on Monday, bringing high winds and storm surges to Cuba and Florida later this week. The storm has sustained winds of 60 miles per hour. It could reach Category 2 strength with 110 mile per hour winds when making landfall in Florida, which is forecast for Wednesday. The National Hurricane Center says Idalia could cause scattered flash and urban flooding along Florida's west coast, the Panhandle, and southern Georgia late Tuesday night through Wednesday. Governor Ron DeSantis declared a state of emergency for 33 Florida counties on Saturday. He said power company workers are preparing ahead of the storm and that over 1,000 members of the National Guard were mobilized with 2,400 high-water vehicles and a dozen aircraft for rescue and recovery efforts. The storms, of course, as we know, these things can wobble, so Floridians along our Gulf Coast should be vigilant, even if you're currently outside the cone, and indeed you could see impacts uh, if you are in a place that's outside the cone. DeSantis canceled his campaign trip to South Carolina, scheduled for today, as the storm barrels toward the state. He also attended a Sunday night vigil in the wake of a Saturday shooting in the state that left three dead, plus the gunman who committed suicide. And on the topic of violence, multiple shootings over the weekend. Four people were shot at a high school football game in Oklahoma and taken to the hospital Friday night. At least seven people were injured by gunfire near a parade in Boston on Saturday and a shooting in Louisville, Kentucky yesterday left one person dead and five others injured. The Jacksonville, Florida shooter that killed three people at a Dollar General on Saturday has been identified. Police say 21-year-old Ryan Christopher Palmetter had no criminal history and bought his firearms legally. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Authorities describe the killings as racially motivated. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis condemned the shooting. Perpetrating violence of this kind is unacceptable, and targeting people due to their race has no place in the state of Florida. Casey and I extend condolences to the victims of their, and their families on behalf of the entire state of Florida. The local sheriff says Palmetter was briefly held under a state law called the Baker Act in 2017. The law states a person can be taken in for involuntary examination during a mental health crisis. Three U.S. Marines were killed in a helicopter crash in Australia yesterday. At least eight were seriously wounded. The Osprey helicopter had 23 Marines on board. It went down during a joint military exercise. Here's what Colonel Cedric Lighton had to say about the crash. As far as I know, the Marine Corps hasn't announced an operational stand-down of these aircraft yet. Uh, but what often happens is they will actually ground the fleet of aircraft. Uh, they will assess uh, what had happened. Uh, part of that will, of course, be the accident investigation. The other part is going to be, uh, you know, what kinds of conditions were there? Was there a weather issue, uh, like uh, was the case probably in Norway? Uh, but in this particular situation, we don't know enough yet uh, if weather or anything else was an issue it was uh, simply a mechanical failure. Australian Defense Forces are assisting U.S. personnel at the crash site. The cause of Sunday's incident is under investigation. An Osprey helicopter was involved in two other deadly crashes last year. 
The Hawaii Emergency Management Agency on Saturday briefly issued an evacuation order for West Maui due to brush fire. The order was in place for Anapuni Loop to West Mahapulu, the agency said in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter. The order was subsequently lifted after firefighters stopped forward movement of the fire, the agency said in a follow-up post. The island of Maui was devastated earlier this month after the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century swept through the resort town of Lahaina, leaving 115 people dead and 338 missing. Search teams are still sifting through Lahaina's blackened ruins. In other news, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is on a four-day visit to China. Raimondo summarized the trip's mission as protect what we must and promote where we can. The visit, which ends Wednesday, comes as the Chinese regime struggles to save its faltering economy. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Raimondo arrived in Beijing late Sunday and was greeted at the airport by the Director General of China's Commerce Ministry, Li Feng, and U.S. Ambassador Nick Burns. She is the fourth Biden cabinet official to visit Beijing in the past three months, after Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and Climate Envoy John Kerry. The U.S. has been working with allies to block the Chinese regime's access to advanced semiconductors and plans to finalize sweeping export restrictions soon. Beijing, meanwhile, is restricting shipments from chipmaker Micron Technology and raided and fined U.S. firm Mintz Group $1.5 million for doing what it called unapproved statistical work. Raimondo emphasized she would tell Chinese officials the U.S. will not negotiate or compromise when it comes to national security and that just because the U.S. invests at home doesn't mean it's looking to decouple from China's economy. She said stable relations between Washington and Beijing are profoundly important as she kicked off a meeting Monday with her counterpart, Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentou. The U.S. Commerce Department removed 27 Chinese entities from the unverified list ahead of Raimondo's trip, which restrict companies from receiving sensitive U.S. technology exports. The Commerce Secretary also wants to boost travel and tourism between the two countries. It's the first visit by a U.S. Commerce Secretary to China in seven years. House Select China Committee Chair Mike Gallagher and other Republicans urged Raimondo to tighten export controls on the CCP ahead of her visit. Officials warn the Chinese regime has no intention of changing policies, such as forced technology transfers and state subsidies that led to current export controls. Raimondo will hold bilateral meetings with Chinese officials Monday and Tuesday in Beijing before heading to Shanghai. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Up next, conflicting polls on who won the debate and criticism against the participants. We bring you coverage of the GOP primary debate aftermath and a look ahead. 3M agrees to pay $6.5 million to settle anti-bribery charges from the SEC. It was accused of providing Chinese officials with overseas travel and shopping sprees to boost sales. Stay with us. Welcome back. 3M has agreed to a $6.5 million settlement with the SEC. That's over charges that its Chinese subsidiary covertly sent Chinese officials on paid trips to the U.S. and Australia in efforts to boost company sales. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on the settlement. The SEC said last week that 3M's wholly owned China unit arranged for Chinese healthcare officials' overseas travel, sightseeing, and entertainment activities on the pretext that they were attending conferences or marketing activities from at least 2014 to 2018. 
At least one former 3M China marketing manager and several staff from the sales, marketing and professional services departments were involved in the scheme. Those 3M China employees targeted influential officials working at state-owned Chinese entities with the aid of two Chinese travel agencies and created a fake itinerary to get approval from the company's compliance personnel along with an alternative set of tourism activities near the event venue. The tourist destinations included Los Angeles, Nashville, Boston, Chicago, and Sydney. The official agenda was packed with educational events, while the alternative itinerary had primarily tourism activities. The SEC said 3M China paid nearly $1 million for 24 such trips and measured whether these payments were driving up sales, and that at least one employee from 3M's China unit was in charge of tracking post-trip sales to ensure they were consistent with 3M China sales goals. The SEC says 3M improperly benefited at least $3.5 million in increased sales. It also paid a Chinese travel agency a total of $254,000 in 15 payments for vaguely termed marketing efforts, then improperly recorded the costs as legitimate business expenses. 3M agreed to pay the fine without admitting or denying the findings. The SEC says the company promptly self-reported its employees' misconduct after first learning about it in 2018 and fully cooperated with its investigation. The Minnesota-based company subsequently took corrective measures, including disciplining employees involved in the misconduct, terminating its relationship with Chinese travel agencies, and enhancing its internal controls environment and compliance program. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now we're going to hear from a journalist who has been gathering information on the political front. Let's delve into the aftermath of the debate and what's on the schedule for this week. Jeff Lauterbach, a reporter for the Epic Times, joins us live. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now that the first debate is behind us, we have some indication of who Americans thought won. A 538 poll had DeSantis as the top performer, whereas a poll for the New York Post showed Ramaswamy was who they picked. So now what can you tell us about the aftermath of the debate? Well, some would say that Donald Trump won because of the viewership with the interview with uh, Tucker Carlson. But on the stage in Milwaukee, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Nikki Haley is another person who picked up a lot of points. Uh, she she had some uh, followers who who liked how she performed. Uh, Governor DeSantis also, and another person I I thought did pretty well, but you're not hearing much about him was uh, Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Right. Well, we've definitely seen a lot of views for that interview that Trump had with Tucker Carlson. And now you reported on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s town hall in Richmond, Virginia, after which he criticized Republicans on the debate stage, saying they are out of sync with the mood of the country. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, well, uh, RFK Jr. was on a town hall towards South Carolina, and then he made a stop in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, had a good turnout at that town hall. Uh, an hour later, went back and watched the debate. And he just feels he's running on a ticket where he's unifying uh, the country, Democrats, Republicans, independents. And he just felt there was needless bickering going on. And he, uh, he just believes in uh, focusing on solutions and unifying the country. And that's what he meant by out of sync with the with the mood of the country because he believes that people are fed up and they want solutions and not uh, arguments. Right, and you've done a lot of reporting on RFK Jr. What more can you tell us about his campaign? Well, what I found interesting uh, last week at this time, I 
was in a hotel, I believe it was Florence, South Carolina. It was interesting because it was one city every day, uh, town hall tour across South Carolina. What, what I found was his campaign is picking up a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of people, I interviewed dozens of people who are, are supporters of his and were in attendance at the town halls. They're former Trump uh, supporters. They voted for Trump in 2016 and, and or 2020. Some of them even worked on the Trump campaign and are now uh, supporting or volunteering for the RFK Jr. campaign. A lot of them said that the, this campaign with RFK Jr. is reminding them of the 2016 uh, Trump campaign. That is very interesting that you point that out because some people have said that RFK Jr. might be in the wrong primary. So. Now, I want to know, what does the political schedule look like this week? Are there any big speeches or court appearances that are planned that might shake up the election landscape? Well, um, I don't know about that, but I know about, um, you know, I'm on the RFK Jr. beat, and and he continues to focus to build momentum because his campaign is gaining momentum. We're uh, President Biden, obviously, with his uh, I don't know what you call it, performance or lack of uh, connection in Hawaii, he, continue, he continues to slip in, in popularity and his mental fitness is in question. And the RFK Jr. campaign believes that it can keep picking up momentum. But what's interesting is the RFK Jr. RFK Jr. himself refuses to comment or focus on uh, President Biden's mental fitness or Hunter Biden's issues or President Trump's uh, legal issues. He believes on focusing on the solutions. And again, that's what I found. That's the main observation I have from this town hall tour that he, people like that. People want uh, the focus on that. Well, thank you for bringing that underground reporting to us so much. Jeff Lauderback, reporter for the Epic Times. I appreciate it. Thank you. Just ahead, China's indebted Evergrande is back to trading in Hong Kong. How has it performed? What are the market implications following the collapse in the U.S.? We spoke to an expert in investment and macroeconomics. That ceiling fan above your head might take some of the bite off the summer heat, but is it environmentally friendly enough? The Biden administration doesn't think so. We'll have that coverage for you in just a moment. Good to have you back. Shares of China's Evergrande tumbling 80% in early trade. That's after the embattled developer resumed trading in Hong Kong today after a 17-month suspension. If the halt had lasted another month, Evergrande would have faced delisting. But the company did offer a glimmer of hope over the weekend. It reported a January to June net loss of just over $4.5 billion. That's about half the figure of one year ago. Evergrande is the world's most indebted property developer, with total debt estimated at more than $300 billion. The company is at the center of a crisis that has engulfed China's real estate sector for the past two years. Evergrande is now looking to restructure its overseas debt and filed for U.S. bankruptcy protection earlier this month. BlackRock and PIMCO, an American investment firm, invested in Evergrande at one point, and following the news, the Senate discussed the risks of China's debt crisis at a hearing, but no one there asked if the government, as in you, the taxpayers, would bail out Wall Street in the event of more bankruptcies of companies in China. 
I want to learn more about the impacts of Evergrande's collapse and what this reveals about the ruling Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. So I spoke with an expert in investments and macroeconomics. Joining me now is James Gorey, author of The China Crisis, Epic Times contributor, and he also runs the blog The Banana Republican. Thank you so much for your time today, James. What does Evergrande's bankruptcy mean for Americans? What it means for Americans is that there's a loss of, of demand uh, from China, excuse me, from America to, to China. So Evergrande's collapse is, a, is emblematic of, of, of the lack of uh, demand within the Chinese economy, uh, the inability of the Chinese economy to really run itself. And so from America's perspective, look, we're the, they're one of their top uh, exporters and importers, and they export to us top place. And the fact is, is that China is, a, uh, is seeing itself collapse and that impacts America's ability to impact China because there's less, there's less leverage there, and we're importing less from China. They're actually below our, they're below Mexico and Canada now in terms of uh, who we import from. So, what's symbolic about Evergrande's failure? Well, look, the the China miracle, the Beijing miracle, was was based largely on development. They were largely an agrarian uh, country, and the Evergrande. Has Evergrande failure is emblematic of the fact that they've relied on development and overdevelopment for 30% of their economy. Now that that's collapsing, now that that's, that's that facade is being revealed by the slower demand and the, and the lack of the lack of growth internally and externally, China is seeing deflation. They're seeing less demand, less uh, productivity, and prices are falling. So in your article, you wrote that the collapse was due to foolish policies by the CCP. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. You know, the economic demand uh, for productivity, you, you, you make decisions on where to build, what to build, and, and when to build it, based on, typically based on economic factors. But in China, it's much more of a political factor, you know, keeping uh, political party bosses happy, spreading the wealth around, building projects that don't need to be built, funding them with debt that never gets repaid, uh, using the bank, the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, um, to just roll over debt. So they're building projects to make money to, uh, based on loans that are going to never be repaid. And uh, it, it, after a while, you can only do that so many times. <laughs> the economy can only sustain that so much because that debt has to go somewhere. And uh, again, those, those buildings, those cities that are built with no one in them, that's a waste of capital, a waste of, of, uh, of uh, labor, and uh, they're not being used. It's a drain on the economy. It's not productive economic activity. Is there any insight that we can glean into the CCP based on Evergrande's failure? Sure. The CCP is not an economic-oriented uh, uh, growth machine and growth uh, organization. It's a political party designed the sole thing of the sole goal of keeping power so the ccp's goal is to hold on to power one way of holding on to power was allowing economic growth to occur organically another way of holding on to power was to make sure employment was full and there wasn't enough consumer demand to do that so they looked to development and overdevelopment as a way to keep uh, people employed and make a lot of money just so yeah, it, the CCP is not a is not a an economic an organization with with you know classic economic liberalism and uh, analytics. They're they're ultimately about power and about um, holding on to that power as much as they can any way they can. 
Right, and some of the repercussions for artificially increasing productivity here. James Gorey, blogger and author, it was really great speaking with you. Thank you, Kevin. Pleasure. And now some short headlines from around the world. Russian investigators said yesterday that genetic tests confirmed mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was among the 10 people killed in a plane crash last week. There had been some speculation about whether the Wagner chief had really been on the doomed flight. The exact cause of the incident is yet to be determined. In Romania, at least two people are dead and around 60 others injured after a devastating twin explosion at a Romanian fueling station near the capital Bucharest over the weekend. Most of the injured were people from the services who intervened. Several patients were airlifted to hospitals in Germany and other countries. Today, Japan called harassing phone calls from China extremely regrettable. That's over the release of treated radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant. China strongly opposes the move and has banned all aquatic product imports from Japan. China, however, has been discharging treated radioactive wastewater into the oceans for decades. The International Atomic Energy Agency has said the discharged water was well within safe limits. Heavy rains and strong winds swept across parts of the Balearic Islands, including Majorca. In Spain yesterday, strong winds brought down trees, sent cafe tables flying, and debris crashing into nearby buildings. Some people were injured when a British cruise ship collided with a petrol tanker because of high winds in the area. And just ahead, you try to keep things simple going for the ceiling fan instead of an AC. But the Biden administration is now saying even those fans waste too much energy, causing pollution. And while rent increases across major U.S. cities are cooling, in the Big Apple, the cost is sky high and rising. We hear how New Yorkers are responding to private market forces and landlord-friendly moves by the city when we come back. Welcome back. A popular item for cooling things down finds itself in the hot seat. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story on the Biden administration's proposed new restrictions on ceiling fans. The Department of Energy has come up with some new rules that would impose energy efficiency standards on ceiling fans. The move follows similar restrictions unveiled against other household appliances like gas stoves and generators. The agency estimates that consumers could save around four bucks per year with its new guidelines. While manufacturers may have to shell out about $87 million annually in increased equipment costs, the DOE's ban on gas stoves also projects meager savings for consumers, a figure recently updated to an even lower amount. The Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers says the original proposal to save consumers 13 cents per month in utility costs has been revised to just nine cents per month. At that figure, the projected savings will come to just about a buck a year. Republicans from the House Committee on Small Business are criticizing the proposal, highlighting the harms it would have on small businesses in the ceiling fan industry. They say the rule would force many small business fan manufacturers to redesign their products and could put between 10 and 30 percent of them out of business altogether. The DOE says the proposed standards wouldn't take effect until 2028 and would give people more energy-efficient options to choose from while substantially reducing air pollution. 
Around 85 million American households use at least one ceiling fan, with a quarter using four or more. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now we're going to look at rent prices in U.S. cities. In a little over half of the 100 largest cities in the country, rent is still higher than last year. Rent platform Zumper found that in these cities, rent prices are not going up as fast, but they aren't going down. And in the Big Apple, Mayor Eric Adams has acknowledged tenants are suffering. But he also pointed out that landlords are too, and that is viewed as an indirect suggestion that certain rents should be raised. So I took a trip to investigate this to find out how this trend is playing out in NYC. Rent in New York City is hitting record levels, and it's only expected to go up. Right now, the median rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan is about $4,300. And the Rent Guidelines Board, appointed by the mayor, recently increased rent for over one million rent-stabilized apartments. We're going to learn more about this and how tenants in the unregulated private market are responding. We're joined by Sam Goldberg, tenant attorney, and Sam, it's great to have you with us today. Ah, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Can you give us the specifics on the rent increase of the rent-stabilized housing in June in New York City? Absolutely. So as of right now, if you sign a one-year renewal lease as a rent-stabilized tenant, it's a 3% increase. Um, if you enter into a two-year lease, uh, the first year is 2.75%, and the second year is 3.2%. So Sam, this is the second year in a row that this has happened. Now, is this sustainable? So the cost of living in NYC right now is skyrocketing. And due to that, the landlords are having a lot of trouble sustaining their buildings because of all the new expenses. But I believe it's unfair for the landlords to expect the tenants to have to pay for their burdens. Um, if they continue to raise the rents on the tenants and the tenants are unable to afford living in New York City, that's gonna be an even bigger problem because all of the apartments will be empty. People will not be able to live here. I think what should be happening right now is the city should step in. They should be giving some incentives to the landlords um, for allowing tenants to live there at a reasonable rate. It's definitely a two-sided issue here. I mean, of course, some housing advocates are saying that these rent increases are maybe even driving tenants out of their apartments and then leaving them in precarity. That's not a situation that you want to be in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people in New York City only make so much money. Um, and, you know, living here is very expensive and, you know, some people don't make enough money and even as a rent stabilized tenant now, it used to be if you were rent stabilized, the rent was very low and that was, and that was helpful. But nowadays, even as a rent stabilized tenant, we're talking in the thousands and thousands of dollars. It could be $3,000, $4,000 a rent stabilized tenant. Um, so yeah, it, it's very difficult for tenants to sustain, you know, their rent every month. And these rent stabilized tenants, they're immigrants, they're sometimes senior citizens. These people are on fixed income. So a 3% increase, I mean, what's that, like 90 bucks a month for a cheap apartment? That could be a lot. Absolutely. I mean, if your rent is $3,000 a month, they raise it 3%, that's 90 extra a month, $1,000 a year. And then think about it this way, then when the Rent Guidelines Board does another vote, it's another percentage on top of the previous percentage. So it's a constant hike, hike, hike. And yeah, it's going to drive people out of their apartments. What so, can you tell us about tenants more broadly in New York City? What are they telling you? I mean, I've heard from a lot of tenants that New York City is very expensive. Um, again, it's, the apartments are small. Um, I've heard a lot of people are actually trying to go over to New Jersey. They could commute into the city. Um, they can get a bigger apartment for cheaper, for cheaper rent. That is interesting. Well, tenant attorney Sam Goldberg, thank you. And we're going to turn to some residents in New York City and see how they're faring. You know, you make it work. Uh, it's definitely tough. Um, I think there's like maybe like this uh, thing like the New York hustle or whatever where everybody's working two jobs. Uh, I'm working three. Uh, you just make it work. You make it happen. Uh, but it's tough sometimes. Wow, three jobs. That's yeah. impressive. Have you had to make any lifestyle changes to keep up with the increased rent? Uh, I mean, 
you know, shopping for groceries more effectively, you know, uh, maybe drinking a little bit less, but that's probably good for me. Uh, I definitely see as many shows as I used to, so that's, I don't, not, nothing huge, but you have to think about what you're buying a little bit more. The speed on my salary raising can never catch up with the speed on inflation. I think it's a little bit too high. So what have you done in order to keep yourself in an apartment? Um, I just go to work, earn my salary and pay my rent, that's it. Much, much more. I mean, I moved to New York last summer and I thought it was high then, like it was supposed to be at an all-time high. And I'm looking again this time and I feel like it's gone even higher. So, yeah. I hope you find a place. No, no, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. As the nation grapples with post-pandemic mental health concerns, some cities are responding to crises in innovative new ways. Some larger American cities are choosing to replace mental health response teams that include police officers with clinicians and paramedics. 14 cities, including New York, Seattle, Denver, and Houston, have adopted this strategy. Proponents say it is more effective in helping connect patients with services instead of just taking them to an emergency room. So we're very good at sending people to emergency rooms. Any unit can do that. What Health One can do, our co-responder program can do, is send people to homeless shelters, to clinics, to outpatient-based programs, to sobering, back to their house if that's where they need to get. We have a lot of tools at our disposal for that that our operations members don't have. These alternate response teams also focus on de-escalating situations with people in crisis. Another one might be uh, de-escalation and crisis intervention. So that requires really two things that often operations doesn't have, a large amount of time and specialized knowledge and training. So our folks are very good at that. They are very proficient in um, de-escalating clients who are in behavioral or emotional crisis, and they have the time to spend. If that takes two hours, they can spend two hours. An, an engine or an aid car can't spend that time. They have to get back in service. However, detractors are concerned about possible violence in the absence of armed police during these procedures. A Stanford University study found that petty crime reports fell by a third and violent crime stayed steady in the early stages of Denver's mental health response program. It also eases the burden on hospitals. In New York, social workers and paramedics in their program resolve about half their 911 calls by talking to people or taking them to social service or community health centers rather than the hospitals where armed officers have traditionally brought people in crisis. New York and other cities are considering plans to expand the program. Coming up, Fed officials are debating whether to raise rates again. Entity business host Don Ma brings us the latest. And for the first time in six years, Target sales are down, and there could be a few reasons for that. We have analysis on Target merchandise that created some backlash after the break. Welcome back. New interest rate hikes are on the table again. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell called for more vigilance in the fight against inflation at the Kansas City Fed's annual retreat. Here to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Don, thanks for making the time today. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. So Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that he's going to hint at more bad news for borrowers at the Jackson Hole Summit on Friday. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, sure. You know, the market has been hoping for a long time now that the Fed will start cutting interest rates uh, soon. 
But, you know, it seems like Powell said that additional interest rate hikes are still on the table um, and rates could remain elevated for longer than expected. And that's bad news for anyone who's in need of credit uh, right now. So Powell said this at the highly anticipated speech uh, at the annual economic symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So basically Powell is saying that inflation still too high, even though it has come down from its peak. He says that uh, he needs to sort of feel confident that inflation is moving substantially down toward uh, the Federal Reserve's target. Yeah, and we're seeing some of those ripple effects of those high interest rates. So is there a risk that inflation will not come down to the Fed's target? Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely a risk. Uh, the Fed wants inflation to come, come down to 2%. That's their target. Uh, the Federal Reserve wants to slow down the, the economy to achieve that. And if that happens, I mean, we're definitely going to feel the impact. We're, we're sort of feeling the impacts now already. But, you know, broadly speaking, it seems like the economy is not going in the direction that Powell wants. In fact, economic growth in the second quarter picked up from the prior three-month period. And, and now the Atlanta Fed is estimating growth will accelerate even more in the third, third quarter. And this is probably exactly the reason why Powell said that a restrictive monetary policy may be here to stay for longer. Well, hopefully that's a good outlook. So do you have anything else for us, Don? Sure. Um, just a quick update. Uh, first, uh, on the tech giant 3M, the company is close to agreeing to a $5 billion settlement. Uh, over defective earplug products. Uh, according to Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, the earplugs failed to protect thousands of veterans from hearing loss. So the case has become the largest mass tort in U.S. history with more than 300,000 claims. But besides that, a bit of good news for home buyers, it seems. Uh, Zillow Home Loans is rolling out a new 1% down payment program. Uh, through the plan, eligible buyers only have to pay 1% down and Zillow pays an additional 2%, bringing the total to 3%. Um, that's typically the minimum payment required for a home loan. Uh, the offer came last week when mortgage rates hit their highest level in 22 years. But the program cur currently is only available uh, to buyers in Arizona. And one more update, and it's going to be on the car market. Chinese EV car maker and electronics component provider BYD has bought U.S. company J-Bills Mobility Business, which is located in China. The over $2 billion sale gives BYD a wider consumer base, a bigger portfolio, and more components. So BYD stock actually rose more than 2% after the, after the sale was announced. Um, yeah, that's all from me today, Kevin. And hearing is just so important, and good thing that those veterans are getting some compensation there. So, Don, host of NTD Business, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And for the first time in six years, Target sales are down, and there could be a few reasons for that. A lot of it centers on a negative reaction to some of the company's merchandise. We hear from an author and entrepreneur about why Target's revenue has declined. Joining us now is Jeffrey Tucker, senior columnist at the Epic Times and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. 5%, that's how much the second quarter sales for Target went down this year compared to last year. Now, of course, we know there's inflation worries among customers and also the end of the student loan moratorium, which can make money a little bit tight for that group. But how significant are these Pride Month merchandise boycotts? 
Uh, they are decisive, and for a, for a company to decline five percent is really dramatic. In fact, it's almost existential. Uh, these countries, uh, these companies, are extremely levered up. They got levered up over 15 years, uh, where they thought they could do no wrong. They could take their customers for granted, uh, push out products, and it's just not going to matter. Everybody's going to love them regardless. And they've gotten a wake-up call over the last six months with consumers now becoming aware that a lot of these big companies that, that thrive so much during lockdowns, they were considered essential, um, actually have started promoting things they consider evil. And you know, all the customers are doing is declining to buy. That's not the same. It's not even a boycott so much as it is, I'm just not gonna support that place and I'm going to direct my spending elsewhere. And as a result, a lot of these companies are suffering. I mean, Target's there, but Bud Light and many others, I'm sure, are lined up. In fact, these days, these large companies live in fear of some social media influencer outing what they're really up to. So people are voicing their opinions with their wallets here. But now, in terms of actual free speech and the implications there, back in June, there were 15 Democrat attorneys general that wrote a letter to CEO Cornell, and they said that polling LGBT items was a setback for the so-called march of social progress. And then basically saying that these customers who speak out then cause these companies to make adjustments are achieving their goals through bullying. So what's your reaction? Yeah, well, that, that's not bullying. It's just called capitalism. Under capitalism, consumers are in charge. It's the way we vote. We're in charge of what consumers are in charge of the use of society's resources in a material sense. We get to say which companies thrive and which ones die based on the extent to which they are deferential uh, to our values and serve our interests. And if they don't, they're going to go under. And if they do, then they're going to thrive and get bigger. So that's the, that's the system. It's called freedom. It's called capitalism, and there's nothing bullying about it. It's just customers taking back power from from the big banks, the big corporations, and big government. So I think there's you know every reason to be thrilled by this. It's completely consistent with with freedom, and I'm I'm one. I'm just super happy to see it. I think it's one way we're going to save our country. These are some of these free market principles at work here, something you alluded to. Now, Republican attorneys general in July, they warned that Target selling these LGBT products that are marketed towards children may violate child protection laws. What can you tell us about this? You know, you know I don't know. That seems like a bit of a guerrilla tactic. Uh, I'm not even sure it's going to be necessary. I mean, now that, now that we've got uh, customers waking up, consumers waking up, we probably don't need to be invoking these sort of regulatory uh, considerations here. I mean, I, these days, you've noticed, I'm sure, and viewers have noticed that there's been a change over the last three or four months in the way these corporations are behaving. I mean, they're dialing back some of the woke philosophy. Um, a lot of the big uh, financial firms are dropping the so-called ESG and DEI principles from their criterion for investors. So we're starting to see a real change taking place, and it's 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 really that's tremendously thrilling. I don't think we need to invoke consumer protection clauses here to get done what we need to get done. All we have to do is have consumers alert to uh, how they spend their money and spending it on things that uh, they they value and are consistent with their values. Yes, and we've been following the results of the pushback, of course, what happened to Bud Light as well. Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. In August 1963, 250,000 people turned out for the March on Washington. Sixty years later, the event is remembered and celebrated. Not only people, but pets in Maui also lost their homes after the fires. 
We see how some orphan pups are finding new homes and new hope after the break. Good to have you back with us. The recent 60th anniversary of the March on Washington was celebrated at the Lincoln Memorial over the weekend. Participants in the event, like Reverend Al Sharpton and others, said this was not organized to commemorate the March on Washington. Instead, they intended as a continuation of the tenets outlined in Dr. Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. The original crowd in 1963 numbered around 250,000 people. The 1963 march played an important role in getting legislation changes for both civil and voting rights in America. And following the deadly wildfires on Maui earlier this month, orphaned pets will be up for adoption. Rescuers have evacuated over a dozen of them to San Diego. Here's the story. 20 orphaned pets will be up for adoption in San Diego after animal rescuers transported them from the devastation of the Maui wildfires. The Helen Woodward Animal Center has helped arrange the evacuation to ease the room in shelters of the Hawaii Island. Yes, so we're extremely excited to be bringing in a number of rescue animals from the island of Maui. We're actually working with the Hawaii Animal Rescue Foundation on the island of Maui. And, you know, we've been wanting to help after the devastation of the Maui fires. More than 100 people were killed in the wildfires that tore through Maui. It was the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than 100 years. Over 300 people are still unaccounted for. And one of the things we know that they're in desperate need of all the time is space and clearing out their shelters. And now more than ever, it's extremely crucial because the people in Maui lost their homes and they are having to rebuild from scratch and they don't have any place to put their pets and their animals. So they are looking towards the shelters. Members of the Hawaii Animal Rescue Foundation on Maui have been trying to find lost pets and provide comfort and supplies to those in need. Alaska Airlines helped fly the pets to San Diego. The newly arrived pets will be available for adoption over the next few weeks after they clear their medical checks. Those interested in adopting can visit animalcenter.org. Heartwarming. And that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.